my key message is stay with something long enough so you can make a difference and you can really learn something of substance. It's business karma. You're going to get something from it and you're going to give something back. And both are important, but you need to stay a good period of time to make that happen. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Wilson, and this is NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. Our guest this week is Jeff Evans, who is president of Eurofin's CDMO Alfora in Mississauga, Ontario. Jeff started his career in the life sciences sector, but he moved to industrial products and then rebounded back to a small research lab that eventually grew into one of Canada's foremost contract development and manufacturing organizations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you're not aware, this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. NGBI is an in-person speakers event taking place in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. For more information and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Before we jump into today's episode, we'd like to take a moment to thank the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the TMX Group for their support. We also appreciate the sponsorship provided by Admari BioInnovations, OmniaBio, Nova Nordisk Canada, and Bay Area Health Trust. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com slash sponsor or listen for my contact information at the end of today's show. This episode was recorded in 2023. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. I understand you were born in London, Ontario, into a family where you were the third of four siblings. How busy was that household? Oh, gosh, it was quite a busy household, that's for sure. I read your grandfather, your father, your uncles, and a brother all worked with the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Did you ever work as extra gang in the railway yourself? So we came from a family of people that worked at the CPR. And my father worked in the crew office organizing where the trains shuttled around and whatnot. And his father was an engineer and he had brothers and so on and so forth. I never worked there, but my brother did in that same office. And as a kid, I actually had an opportunity with my friends to ride around in the rail yard with my father on some of the trains that were shuttling around the tracks. Wow, that must have been a great memory. I understand your mother worked at Bell Canada as a service clerk. For the younger listeners of our podcast who may not know what an operator was, let alone a, a service clerk, what was that job about? A service clerk was the person you called at Bell Canada when you wanted to do anything. If you wanted to hook up a new line to your phone, if you wanted to upgrade it or take it down, or if you needed a new type of phone. And she was also the one that would call you when it was time for you to pay your bills and you had nothing yet. She always said that the folks that probably shouldn't have bought all the extra features are the ones that didn't have the money. That was her observation in life. That probably applies equally today. I mentioned you were raised in London. Were you raised in the suburbs? Were you downtown? We lived on the outside of London. Very close to the rural area was on the outskirts. I grew up in what's called a veteran subdivision. It's called the BLA subdivision. So everybody in our subdivision was a veteran for World War II. And they were given an opportunity to buy homes at subsidized prices. But it was right at the edge of where the farming world met the city. As we grew up, you'd go over a block or so and you'd be seeing farms with cows in them and all that sort of stuff. Across the road, there was a big open field that as kids, we'd get into it and mess around it all day long and make 
forts and all kinds of interesting things. Across the way was a giant woods where we also spent a lot of time. It was a great place to grow up. That sounds like my childhood up in North Bay. I read that you knew around grade five when, when you were, I guess, about 11 years old, that you wanted to be an architect or an engineer. Now, I have to admit, I can see talking with an 11-year-old about architecture, but I have difficulty imagining a conversation with a kid at that age about engineering. That's a pretty mature conversation. Do you know what planted that seed? I wish I knew. I don't. I used to joke that maybe it was from watching the Brady Bunch. Whatever it takes. I guess I knew from an early age I love building things. You know, I was always, as a kid, I was always at my dad's workshop messing around and making things. As a kid, we're, as I said, we're out in the fields building forts and things like that. So I think architecture and engineering kind of went to that same direction. As I got older, I realized, while well, you know, I really appreciate architecture, just like you appreciate it like a good wine, I could never make one. <laughs> I didn't think I had the skills for that, and that's how I ended up going into the engineering side. In grade five, you were thinking this. Yeah, it started in grade five. It really did. When I got into high school, as early as grade nine, I was taking drafting courses. I was taking machine shop for about three, four years. It was all to kind of head down that road. Somehow, I kind of had a path that I figured out at an early age. Well, good for you. I was sorry to learn that your father passed away when you were 13 years old. That must have been an incredibly difficult time for both you and, and your family. Certainly it was. He had kidney failure. From an early age, he had high blood pressure issues that were probably related to some issue with his kidneys. And that continued through his adult life to the point where he needed a transplant, and then he passed away, sadly. You know, I was 13 at the time, and my older brother was away at university. You know, I was the one to take care of the house, all the maintenance and things like that. I suppose, if anything, it just probably made us all grow up a little faster and probably grow stronger and closer together as well. That must have been a key point in your life. Yeah, it was. You know, one of the most things that really resonated with me was how kind everybody was. My dad, doctor, who oversaw his health in the transplant, they actually came to our house the night he died, him and a nurse. When does that happen, right? He even invited us to his farm later on at the whole family, and we were surrounded by extremely nice and helpful people during that time, which certainly helped. I understand you had a teacher in high school who was perhaps more than a bit of a fan of the co-op program at a certain university in Waterloo. Could you tell us a bit about him? I was taking grade 13 courses in grade 12. He was one of the teachers. It was functions, which is one of those math courses I don't want to repeat. He really espoused how important co-op was and how great Waterloo was. I took it to heart. I hadn't thought much about where I wanted to go up to that point. And then I understood what I needed to do to get into Waterloo. So I, I basically uh, really bore down to uh, make that happen. In high school, were you playing sports? Were you a member of any clubs? I did some cross-country sports during my high school. I didn't really participate too much actively in sports and whatnot. There were clubs during high school. I spent a lot of time with my friends playing road hockey and things like that, but not so much on the organized sports side in high school. Yeah, you had your hands full at home. For our younger listeners who are unaware, there used to be a grade 13 in Ontario, and you decided to go to the University of Waterloo. You also had to decide what engineering discipline you wanted to pursue before 
getting there. That's a pretty important decision that would affect your life's path. How much thought did you put into that decision? Well, that's the funny part. I put a lot of thought into engineering and architecture, but when the crunch came down, I had to choose. For Waterloo, you have to choose your discipline before you even get into the course. Unlike other engineering schools where you can go the first year and then choose. So I really based on where I thought the market was, and there was a heavy, heavy activity in the oil and gas sector in Canada at the time. And I thought, well, that seems to be where the market is. I think I'll go into that area. But I have to say, I really had no concept of what chemical engineering was. You know, after all this planning, it was the most spontaneous decision I made and, and set me on the course of my next 35 years. No regrets, but I was not nearly as well informed in that decision as going into engineering in general. So was it a case of eeny, meeny, miny, mo? I went through the various options, and I just remember I really based it on where I thought the market would be in terms of jobs. If you think back to the 70s and 80s, the economy at times was not that great. My brother had just finished a history degree, and he was trying to figure out where he was going to get his jobs. And I graduated just around 82, and we're starting to get into recessions at that point. I think I really based it on where the future jobs were more than anything else. In the end, a lot of similarities, particularly between chemical and mechanical engineering. And mechanical is actually all the extra work I'd been doing probably prepared me for, but there are quite a bit of similarities. Do you think that choosing chemical engineering was perhaps one of the best mistakes you ever made? Yeah, I have have no regrets. I wouldn't say it's a mistake. I did all this preparation and planning and then made a decision like that. And it just teaches you that with life, sometimes... It's those smallest things that send your trajectory a different direction. You know, you begin to recognize that. I understand one of your co-op terms was at a pulp and paper mill in Fort Francis, Ontario. And I know that mill because I spent a summer as a junior ranger just north of Fort Francis when I was 17 years old. What was that experience like for you? Oh, I loved it. That mill was probably maybe 100 years old and full of equipment and the paper machines were still run on pulleys that were driven by ropes. It spanned acres and acres of space. And, you know, when you go up to the wood grinding floor and people were dressed in all this armor gear with picks to drive the wood into these bundles to be ground. It looked like out of a Star Wars movie or something with the kind of armor they had. It's just an incredible place to work. I saw the level of integration of equipment and processes to make something like that happen was quite eye-opening. Did that or any other co-op experiences you have impress upon you any lessons that you carry to this day? Yeah, absolutely. I had two work terms at that company. My first work term was okay, but you know I picked some very difficult projects. I think strategically, they probably weren't the best choice. So my second work term, I actually picked some projects that were quite strategic and things that the leadership of that department were really interested in. And I had a better understanding of that by that point. And they went phenomenally well and they were quite happy with the work. And so that was the first thing is to figure out what's important to the organization. And, you know, I was given these options the first time around. I wasn't clear on what was important to them. And then the second thing is on these projects, particularly in the second term, I had to work very closely with the people running the mill. I learned how to work across the organization, 
from everybody that was running a paper machine to uh, the people maintaining it, to my bosses and managers to run certain projects. I just learned how to work across an organization to get something done. Did you realize perhaps that maybe working in bigger companies versus smaller companies had advantages and disadvantages? Oh, 100%. I think that was clearest to me when I worked at Sarnia for a large refinery for one of my work terms. I thought oil and gas is where I might want to be, but you know, the problem is there's such large operations that are steady state and you have to be very careful what you do with them that certainly as an up-and-coming engineer, there's not a lot of opportunities to really get your hands on projects. I learned that I wanted to be involved in smaller organizations where I could really have a direct impact on what was happening. Now, interestingly, at that pulp mill, I, I was equally able to do that, even though it was a larger operation. But it did certainly focus me on the kinds of opportunities and jobs that would allow me to do that, to be much more hands-on. That's what I needed at the early stages of my career was that hands-on involvement. I thought I was going to learn the best from that. Looking back in your university years, did you enjoy your time at Waterloo? Is that a time that you look back on fondly? You had a lot on the go. Did you have time to have some fun? You know, engineering is pretty heavy. I certainly got through it. I wasn't disappointed to finish getting through it. <laughs> had to move on. I was quite happy to get into the workforce. Waterloo was a path to that, and uh, it was a very good school. And I think what I really got out of Waterloo, I mean, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about co-op. I don't think I would have got as much out of my experience if it wasn't for the co-op. For me, it was so fundamental that learn by doing. In the early days, I couldn't see the relevance of some of these courses to, to where I was going in engineering. But through co-op, I really made a difference and it made me more excited about taking it through to its end. Co-op was absolutely a key success factor for me at Waterloo. So before we jump into your professional career, I'd like to take a moment to talk about your family, if I may. You're married to your wife, Maria, who's a teacher. How did you meet? We met at Waterloo. We were both in a history course. We were on a project together. It was about five or six other people. We met on that project. We didn't start seeing each other until about a term or two later, but that's how we met originally. Oh, that's cool. And you have two daughters. Yes. They're 22 and 25, and one's at UBC and the other one's at Waterloo. One's doing nutrition at UBC, and, and the older one is doing her master's in biochemistry. They're well on their way. I always joke that they're becoming little units of economic production. <laughs> I have a 12-year-old son who's going on 32. Is there any advice you can give me? Just support them. Yeah, I found with our girls, we wanted to always encourage them that they could do whatever they want. But you didn't want to be too enthusiastic that it turns them off. They have to make those decisions themselves, right? And likewise, you don't want to appear to be uninterested in what they're doing. So it's a careful balance. But ultimately, I think you just have to allow them to make their decisions and support them as best you can. Hi, Jim here. We hope you're enjoying today's show and would like to pause for a moment to explain why this podcast exists. NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, which is a fundraising event in support of McMaster Children's Hospital that is taking place on the first Monday in October. If you're a startup, 
an investor, an, an industry supplier, an academic, or just someone who's interested in what is going on in Canada's life sciences sector, we invite you to attend. For details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. You graduated in 1987 with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Chemical Engineering, and your first job was with a startup company in Aurora, Ontario, called Torcan Chemical. How did you end up there? Well, I found the ad through Waterloo, and you know I had interviewed off and on before I graduated, and it sort of fit the bill of what I was looking for because it was a smaller startup company. They were just building a new production plant, and it wasn't finished. It was a nice stage for me to get involved in. It offered me that hands-on opportunity that I really wanted to, and also to get the company from the ground up. So it had a lot of appeal on a lot of levels to me for those reasons. You started off as a process engineer in your second year, two years out of university. You had an opportunity to start up a GMP pharmaceutical manufacturing plant. That was a lot of responsibility for a kid. Do you recall what that time of your life was like? I've been very fortunate in my career that a couple times I've had leaders take bets on me probably before I had a set of experience that justify that. And I think that certainly has made me aware of the kind of bets I should be making on people as well, giving them the chance. When I was at Torcan, I was working on process engineering projects. I was quite interested in the safety side of things. There was areas where I felt we could improve on safety. And so I certainly voiced my thoughts there. And I think that got the attention of leadership. And as the plant was being completed, they tapped me to lead the startup of the operation and to hire all the operators and train them up and to take that plant into operation. It was quite a journey because at that time, late 80s, early 90s, that kind of operation was rather rare in Canada, a GMP to make active pharmaceuticals. So I was hiring people from the food industry, from the paint industry, completely different industries, and then training them up on good GMP practices to make pharmaceuticals. It was the formative stage of my career development for sure. And I saw a lot of new processes transferred into that facility over those 10 years as well. The people that were overseeing you probably saw a maturity beyond your years that you had to cultivate with the passing of your father, perhaps. I'm no psychologist, but perhaps that was a bit of silver lining in that situation. You know, at the time, observers would say that I was mature beyond my years. And maybe it was exactly that situation of my life and my upbringing and, and certainly my father passing and all of that. I am certainly grateful that someone took the chance on me. And indeed, I was always very youthful looking. Some people wondered, how did this 12-year-old kid get <laughs> in charge of this facility? <laughs> This is in 1988, 89-ish? Yeah, about that range. 1989, 1990, around it. Okay, so you're having to hire all of these people. And as you mentioned, it's a pretty new facility. Not a lot of them around at the time. Where did you find the people to hire? You know, it was old school. We put out ads. We were in Aurora at the time. And what we learned is that most of the people that are coming to work for us were north of Aurora. We actually ended up putting advertisements in the local newspapers of all the towns north of Aurora. And those are people that were traditionally commuting all the way down to the city for their jobs, but they were looking for something closer. So that was our strategy and it actually worked quite well. 
So you were at Torcan for about 10 years, and during that time, you attended the Schulich School of Business at York University. And Schulich is absolutely one of the premier business schools in Canada. And I suspect getting your MBA was part of an intentional plan on your part rather than purely out of general interest. Yeah, certainly. I wouldn't do that for five or six years out of general interest. <laughs> when I was in my engineering program, at that time, I thought maybe I, I liked the business side, but I decided to stick through the engineering, and I'm glad I did. But when I graduated, I had an idea of getting in onto the business side and putting the two together. I had taken some management courses during my engineering degree, which kind of took me in that direction. And what I found is I really enjoyed being aware of the full scope of the business and all the levers and issues of the business. It took me MBA with that goal in mind. Back then, I thought my target was to be a plant manager or a production manager, and I was already obviously on that road. But with my MBA, I really got more interested in the hardcore business side of finding business and shaping the business. That's what I learned during my time at Schulich. And fortunately, even during my time at Orcan, I was able to start applying some of those skills. I started up a filter company while I was there that was a product that we made for our own plant and then turned around and sold it into the industry. And I also was helping out on the business acquisition side with the organization. So I got some nice exposure while doing my MBA, which is really, really helpful. You graduated from your MBA program in 1996. And shortly after that, you left Orcan and joined Shawcore as Vice President of Sales and Marketing. Shawcore is a significant product engineering company, and it's also a departure from the pharmaceutical industry. Why did you make that move? What drew you there? When I was approaching the end of my MBA, I was looking for a change in something else. Most people that I reached out to saw me as a plant manager or an operations manager starter person, and I really wanted to break the mold and pivot more into the business side of running a business or creating businesses. And at Torque, I was part of a startup and I actually did another business startup within that business. That entrepreneurial approach was quite interesting to me. I had a fork in the road to choose and I could have stayed in pharma, but I didn't see any business that was interesting enough for me with my background. I could have gotten into generics because there was a heavy generics presence in Canada, but that space wasn't as interesting to me. And there wasn't really any business like what I was in at Torcan unless we had to move to the States or somewhere else. And my wife wasn't terribly interested in that. So I found a business that delivered what I needed on bringing together the technical world and the business world at Shawcore. And Shawcore was a great company. I just loved it. When I joined it, it was basically a one-product company in cable TV with a little bit of something else. And we basically grew the business by two to three times its size by creating new products and taking into new markets and through acquisitions and so on and so forth. And I got to play a role in that. It's a great experience. It really taught me how to build a business, how to grow a business, how to start a business. That's what I was looking for. Wow. Great experience from the sounds of it. So if my math is correct, you and your wife had not yet started your family. Where were you living at the time? We remained in Aurora during that stint when I worked at Shaw Corps. And during that time is when the kids started to come along. It was about halfway through my time at Shaw Corps. You were with Shaw Corps for seven years. And in May 2004, you left to become Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Alfora Research in Mississauga. What's the backstory there? It's all connected. So... 
the founder of Alfora, I had worked with at Torcan. He's the one that tapped me to start up the plant. We had stayed in touch over the years, and he had always said, you know, look, I'm going to start a business someday, and when I do, I want you to join me. And of course, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, whatever, okay. <laughs> yeah, give me a call. One day, he gave me a call, and at the time, I had a lot going on, and I wasn't so sure, but things evolved that, you know, I was ready to make the move, and I joined Del Forest. You know, it's from those personal connections from my past that really brought me to that. So Alfora is a very significant company. Now, at the time, it sounds very clearly like it was a startup, and in purest sense of the word, what was that time like for you professionally? Startup has been a theme of a lot of what we talked about. I've been involved in startups at various stages or even transitioning a business from one place to another. But Alfora truly was a startup. And when I joined, we're maybe about six months just getting started, just finished some labs. And it was 15 people, 5,000 square feet and one client. Now, one client was somehow there was a shareholder relationship. So really, there was no external clients. And my role was really to bring together both the operational experience of my past, but also all this newfound business experience I had in creating businesses and new markets and building them up. I put it all together. In the early days, I was both building out the operational capabilities and hiring up the team. But at the same time, I was a salesperson. I was flying out to San Francisco and San Diego and places like that, basically carrying a bag and knocking on doors and trying to sell the business. I was the only salesperson for the first five to seven years to help grow the business. So was it a case of, oh, it's Tuesday, I got to put my sales hat on and Wednesday I got to put the other hat on kind of thing? Yeah, 100%. I had to learn to compartmentalize building a plant or putting in operations or putting in systems like how to track a project or all these kinds of things take a different kind of skill and focus than making uh, 20 cold calls in the morning. And when it came to building the business, reaching out to people, I had to be completely in the zone. It's a different way of being. I really had to get myself into the zone before I reached out to these people. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the right talk. I wouldn't have the right connectability, all those kinds of things. And so I had to learn how to switch gears all the time. It was true cold calling too. You know, I would just find people's names and reach out to them. And somehow some of them were nice enough to respond to me. And then I'd get a meeting and I'd go from there. And then I got smarter about how to meet these people without having to just cold call and on it went. There were like two worlds and I had to break them up. Otherwise I couldn't keep track. I read with interest that one of the most important things you have learned in your career is how to get things done. What's the secret sauce? I had an epiphany moment very early in my career, about a year into my first job. I'll always remember it. I was leaving my office. It was like six or seven o'clock at night. The corridor was dark. The lights were out. And one of my managers was coming out of his office at the exact same time. And he said, hey, Jeff, I see you're in the office all the time. Become early and stay late. What are you doing? What are you getting done? And then I told him some things, but I sat back and reflected. And I realized that as a young engineer, I was over researching stuff and overthinking stuff, but I just had to move on. So the short answer to your question, Jim, is you have to make decisions on the information you have. And you got to be comfortable with that. Whenever you do that, you have to have backup plan B, C's and D's that if it doesn't go the way you expect, this is how you can pivot. 
And I think that's what I learned. And to be comfortable with that and comfortable with ambiguity. And particularly as a startup or you're going into a new business area, they're fraught with ambiguity. You just got to be comfortable with that. And again, you're going to make decisions with a subset of the information you need. But if you do it in a way that doesn't overextend your risk and you can always pivot if it doesn't work out. So set your priorities and don't get caught up in analysis paralysis. Yes, exactly. Alfora has, I think, about 135 staff at the moment, and you've got a new facility in Mississauga's Sheridan Research Park. This facility opened up during COVID-19, and dealing with that move at that time must have been a real treat. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Today, we're 210 people. During COVID, we actually had a number of building and expansion programs. Everything during COVID was a challenge, as it was for everybody. We built a new lab facility that was finished in mid to the end of 2022, and then we moved in by November of last year. Certainly from a construction perspective, we had really stay on top of it from timelines, supply chain, and costs. And on the supply chain side, we constantly had to pivot to alternatives. And our team did a great job of doing that. And we finished that project on time in our budget. And we moved in without any challenges. It went very well. Working under COVID was an incredible challenge. In the early days in 2020, our work is project-based in the development stage. We saw a lot of projects stop and be put on hold because of all the uncertainty. So certainly that was a challenge for us. And we had to work our way through that. But we did, and we certainly got on to better 2021s and 2022s as we worked our way through the pandemic. We'd like to pause for a moment and explain a bit about the purpose behind this podcast and the next Great Big Ideas Summit. Our goal is to raise awareness of the people in Canada's life sciences sector and and to provide a platform to raise awareness of the research But we have another goal, which is to raise awareness and financial support for McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. Known by many as Mac Kids and part of Hamilton Health Sciences, this hospital provides critical pediatric care to families in need within Gray, Wellington, Waterloo, Brant, Norfolk, Haldeman, and Niagara counties. If you are in a position to make a financial contribution and you're looking to support a worthy cause, we'd like to ask that you consider supporting McMaster Children's Hospital. For more information, please go to hamiltonhealth.ca slash MacKids. That's M-A-C-K-I-D-S. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. One of my fondest memories of my early years in commercial real estate was a presentation of a major project in the financial core. We had the project manager in to the the boardroom at the company I was working at at the time, and the question came up, were you on time and on budget? He said, absolutely. We changed the timeline three times, so we changed the budget five times. For those who may not be familiar with your company, I'd appreciate you sharing with us what Eurofin's CDMO Alfora is about. What do you and your team do exactly? Our business, first of all, we're a CDMO, a contract development manufacturing organization. We're hired or put into relationships with biotech and pharma companies to develop their processes and make materials that go into their clinical studies. And then ultimately, once they're successful, we could supply the manufactured material that goes into the market as well. Our focus is on classic drugs, like small molecule drugs that are made through chemical synthesis. And we develop those processes 
and develop all the analytical controls and carry them through each of those stages. Since we've been now part of Eurofin since 2017, we've expanded out from what that area, which is called API or active pharmaceutical ingredients, and we've added a capability in drug product formulation. So that's a new area for us, and that expands our business, as does solid-state research is another area that we expand in our business. So in short, we have a lot of tools available to help biotech and pharma companies develop their new drugs and then to make those materials for the clinical and commercial needs. So who would your target clients be? There's a whole world of biotech companies out there that are like virtual startups who have found some substance, maybe it's an extract from a sponge or whatever that they know is good for oncology or whatever. We would work with those kinds of companies. So it's biotechs and it's pharma companies, and we would help them with developing their pipeline. And geographically, how far afield would you grab your clients from? Our focus is predominantly North America. Most of our business is in the States. We do have clients in Asia and in Europe, but predominantly North America. You mentioned earlier that your company grew by quite a few people from when last I checked, and it is growing. I'm sure many of our listeners would like to know who it is in particular you're looking for at the moment. You're still looking to hire? We're actually completing a larger scale API plant. So we're always looking for operators and people to run the plant for us. We have been growing steadily in our labs. So we're always looking for good synthetic chemists and analytical chemists in our labs as well. We have a biologics initiative as well at our site, and we're looking for people with those skills. I hope you get a few phone calls from this interview. Being a president of a company comes with a lot of responsibilities. What's the most difficult part of your job? One thing is patience. Sometimes you just have to let things play out. Certainly, the higher up you go in your roles, you have to be very comfortable with ambiguity. I think that's one of the key things. And certainly, the higher you go, the more ambiguous it gets, and you kind of have to take a chance on certain things, but you have to figure out how to do it in a measured way, and that doesn't overly expose the business. But definitely, I think it's dealing with ambiguity. Let's turn that question around. What's the thing that you like most about your job? I would say the number one thing is developing people. Throughout my experience, I've had an opportunity to work with some great people and to help them develop, and many of them moved on to bigger, better jobs. You know, the biggest compliment they can pay me or, or the company I'm at is to be successful when they move on to other opportunities, and I'm always thrilled when they do. I've hired in my career lots of people that their first job was in Canada, and you could see them, you know, with bringing their families from wherever and developing a life for themselves in Canada. Some of those people have sent me Christmas cards years later after they moved on to other companies. It's just a, such a thrill to see those people progress and to see that in some small way, maybe I or my company have been a part of it at one point or another. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. I read you believe your experience is a mile wide and an inch deep, and that caught my attention. I also understand you think you have the ability to drill down when and where you need to. What do you mean by that? I had this whole world of experience on the operations side in pharmaceuticals. And then I have a whole world of experience on business development in industrial products. What is a shock for? I mean, we're selling into aerospace, the military, cable TV, telecommunications, electrical utilities. So I got exposure to all kinds of businesses. And now, of course, at Afora, I'm putting it all together. 
I feel between all those experiences in my education, I, I've been exposed to a lot of things. As I go on in my career, I realize I know less and less than I ever thought I knew. But what I have learned is the power of asking questions and just probing to understand. My experience isn't well wide, but it's in many cases, it's probably only an inch deep. But I certainly can probe anywhere along that continuum to really understand what's going on in any area of the business. And it's nothing more than just asking questions. I really like that. I think a lot of people are going to be listening and think, oh, yeah, maybe I should be doing a bit more listening than I've been doing. If you could have a do-over and go back to your university days, knowing what you now know, are there any courses that you wish you had taken or skipped? I don't have any regrets or courses I wish I didn't take. I probably would have worked harder to be more embedded into the engineering community on the campus. I wasn't as involved in that as I could have been, so I didn't have all the contacts and, and relationships that maybe I could have. That's something I didn't fully appreciate. I was too focused on just getting through, and I wish I had done more of that. You know, the one thing I'll say is engineering the first year is it's pretty heavy on the basic sciences like physics and calculus and algebra. And, and frankly, a lot of that stuff you really don't use. Sure, I would like not have had to do those things, but just part of the process of getting through. But what was really exciting is when you get into the application courses, that was the most interesting part of engineering. Over your career, you went from pharmaceuticals into industrial products and then back to pharmaceuticals. But reading about it makes me think that this was more than a bit intentional. And I have a couple of questions here. First, was there a defining moment when you thought you needed a change? When I was at Torcan, during that time, I was on a path of being a plant manager, and that's what I thought my career would be. And I don't know if you recall, but during the 80s, that's when free trade occurred. And basically, all of those branch plants that were built in Canada to support U.S.-based businesses all shut down. Or not all of them, but a lot of them. And they turned into like distribution operations and things like that. So I was seeing that and said, well, geez, I don't think that's my future. I, I think I need to pivot. I was probably already into my MBA at that point, but I realized I really wanted to go into business creation and running a business side. You know, I had more control over my destiny and also where I wanted to go because you can go to whatever path you choose to create. So that's how I pivoted out of a career path on plant manager sort of role into more of a business leader role. That was a key epiphany for me. It was really driven by the effect of free trade and what that meant for Canada. So stay focused, but not at the expense of failing to recognize opportunity as it arises. You know, I certainly had a career path and we all evolved too, right? Maybe I would have ended up there anyways. I certainly became aware of what was happening in the market. I decided I needed to pivot. And I certainly got the taste of what it meant to start things up in my first 10 years. That was what really excited me. So I just wanted to do more of that. Second part of this question is, was there a defining moment when you knew you were on the right track? Oh, gosh. I'm always asking that. <laughs> <laughs> From a career perspective, I thought I made the right move when I went into my MBA. I thought I made the right move when I went over to Shockcore and I've only been in three companies. Each time when I moved on, there was a reason for that. You know, there's always times in my career where I may have felt things weren't happening fast enough. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to stick with it or are you going to move on? 
sometimes I moved on, like when I left my first company and my second company, but other times I chose to stick with it. Frankly, I've only had three roles, so that's not very many to begin with. And I'm grateful I did because too many people move on from their roles too quickly before they have really learned some deep understandings of what they're doing. And second of all, you need to give back. You need to make a difference at the company you're at. I always say you got to stay at least five years to actually learn something and make a contribution. So I always felt that even if I had the feeling I should move on, I always lead towards just sticking with it and making a contribution. We all experience highs and lows in our careers. Are there any stories in particular that have taught you some hard lessons that have stayed with you? There's been plenty of highs and lows. I would say that organizational awareness is quite important. If you're working for an organization, you're doing a good job. You can't rely on that alone being enough. You need to be aware of what's important to the organization. And you need to ensure that people are aware that you're doing a good job. And I'm not talking about over-promoting yourself. You know, it's really important to manage up. And managing up, it helps you do a better job, but it also makes people you work for aware of what you're doing. If I look back, you know, when I was at Shawcor, I was on the path to being a general manager. About six months before I left, the whole organization reorganized. The opportunities for a general manager evaporated because they collapsed the number of divisions into fewer divisions. My path would have been a lot longer to get there. I wasn't as well aware of that as maybe I could have been, and it taught me maybe I should tune my antennas for that. That was one lesson I had. I also read you believe the emotional cost of leaving a company is much less than it used to be, and the decision to leave a company has also been tempered by the pandemic. That is an interesting comment. I'd appreciate you expanding on that if you could. The first time you leave a company, it's a very emotional decision. You're leaving all your work friends, and there's a certain loyalty that you're turning away from. And that first time is probably the toughest. Each subsequent time you do it, that emotional cost is lower. And if you do it a lot, there's almost no emotional cost. Now, I think that there's a reason why there's an emotional cost, and there should be. So you don't want to become unaware of that because you're moving around so much. The risk during the pandemic is... Those emotional costs have become diminished because of all the remote working and, you know, you're not even necessarily attached to an office and the people you're working with other than through remote means. So that diminishes that emotional cost and attachment. For a seasoned person with 20 plus years of experience, it's probably less consequential, but for someone entering employment, entering their career, I am concerned that they may be ill-served in being immersed in the culture at the formative stage of their development. There's so much that's learned in an office environment or a work environment that goes beyond the tasks that you're doing every day. There's exchanges at the coffee machine. There's exchanges as you're walking in and out of the parking lot. You have meetings where your body language is 90% of the communication. And so all of that, or a good part of that, is lost to this new generation if we we're to continue this way. I am concerned about that for them, because this is the formative stage of their development. Do you think the pandemic has made it more difficult or easier to attract and retain the next generation of staff? Yes and no. It's both sides of that question, right? I think remote work has made it easier to hire someone, but it will be proven harder to retain them. It can cut both ways. The pandemic certainly 
reshape the way people think about their relationship with work. Some of it, I'm not so sure we'll be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Some of it's good, like this meeting we have right here. I mean, it's on Teams and pre-pandemic, one of us would have to travel to the other's office to do this. I'm a big proponent of a hybrid approach to benefit your people and their development and the business. I would agree with you absolutely. If you could give advice to the younger listeners of our podcast who are just starting out in their career, what would that advice be? Well, it kind of circles back to the earlier point in our conversation is be patient. I was talking to uh, someone in the industry just the last week or two that mentioned that people these days may want to move every six months or so. I get resumes, particularly on the BD side of people that move every year or two, and they've been doing this consistently for the last 15 years. And at some point, they almost become unhirable because they just bounce around consistently. My key message is stay with something long enough so you can make a difference and you can really learn something of substance. It's business karma. You're going to get something from it and you're going to give something back. And both are important, but you need to stay a good period of time to make that happen. Be patient. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you're enjoying today's show and this is going to be the self-serving part of our podcast. Frankly, we'd appreciate you telling your friends about us. We'd also greatly appreciate you promoting us on social with the hashtag NGB ideas. On a final note, please remember to click the follow button so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get back to the show. You and your company have a front row seat to what is going on in the Ontario and Canadian life sciences community at the moment. I would appreciate your thoughts on where you think we are, where you think we're heading, and what we need to get there. First of all, the Canadian life science industry its development for a long time lagged what was happening in the U.S. I would visit a company in the U.S., let's say a, a biotech startup with a certain pipeline of products in their pipeline. And it would probably have 10 times the valuation of a company in Canada. And likewise, there'd be all kinds of life science buildings all over the place that were built by developers for like wet labs and biologic labs that I wasn't seeing in Canada. Now, I, I can say that, and I'm quite happy to say, this looks to be changing. And I think the pandemic was an accelerant for that. We're seeing a lot more building of wet labs in Canada. We're really good in Canada developing these incubators. But the problem is that these companies can't move from an incubator into the next stage because there is no next stage. And they can't build these labs themselves because they got to put their money into people and their technology rather than into some hard laboratory and capital costs and equipment. So I'm seeing a lot more of these wet labs being built, which is really exciting. I'm also seeing a lot more investments in advanced technologies on the biologic side, which is also exciting. Certain parks and whatnot are being built out that look like the one in Hamilton that look rather exciting. So I think the future is definitely uh, looking much more uh, positive for the Canadian life science market. I'm quite excited about that. Likewise come back to the personal side of our discussion, we all have a bucket list. And if you don't mind, I would appreciate knowing what's on your bucket list, sir. I play guitar. I like rock and roll and blues and all that kind of stuff. My bucket list is always to play in a band. I've always been too busy to do that, but that's what I'd like to do. I'd like that. I used to sing in a choir when I was a kid and sung in front of several thousand people. Not well. 
but I look back in that part of my life with fondness. It's something that I do miss. The next question I have may be easy, it might be tough. What is it you're most proud of? I think it's probably what we talked about earlier is developing people and giving them an opportunity to excel. And I see that happen and I see people grow and their life changes in a positive way and then to move on to bigger, better things. And to know that in some small way, maybe I had a part of that, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Final question. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? Two things. I think everybody sees it now. The big thing that's happening in all change your industry is this concept of reshoring. You know, we spent the last 30, 40 years moving all our manufacturing out of North America. And it's clear as day that we're going to spend the next 30 to 40 years bringing it back. It may be in a different way in Mexico and might be the broader North American market. You know, there's going to be profound changes that are going to happen over the, the coming decades. And so I think that's going to change the way we work and the way we think about our industries and so forth. For me and our business here, Eurofins Alfora, our next big thing is to start focusing on the biologic space. Our business is always focused on small molecules or drugs made by classic chemistry approaches. But we're now looking towards how we can expand out into the biologics world and actually how those two worlds come together to make an even more interesting offering. So that's the next big thing for us at our business. It sounds like an exciting time, and I look forward to reading more headlines about you and your team. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to join us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been a real treat to do this with you. That was Jeff Evans, president of Eurofins CDMO Alfora in Mississauga, Ontario. To find out more, please go to eurofins.ca. That's E-U-R-O-F-I-N-S dot C-A. You can also follow them on social at Eurofins Canada, and you can follow us on social at Lab Occupier. This week's episode, as usual, was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to get in touch, my email address is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot com. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you're enjoying our show.